Welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to the Madden America podcast. And this week we present a special episode to join in the many events being held for World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day. Later in this podcast, we will hear from psychiatrist Dr. Josef Witt-During, who talks about a recent paper he co-authored entitled Online Communities for Drug Withdrawal, What Can We Learn? We also hear from therapist and campaigner Chris Page, who discusses his own experiences taking a withdrawing from benzodiazepines. Finally, in part two of this podcast, we get to chat with Robert Whittaker, science journalist and author of the books Madden America and Anatomy of an Epidemic. But first, I'm delighted to say that my first guest is Nicole Lamberson. Nicole is lead operations volunteer and Virginia representative for WBAD, and she's kindly taken time out of her busy preparations to talk about how she became involved with WBAD, some of the events and campaigns being held around the world, and how people can get involved. Nicole has an immense passion for benzodiazepine awareness and its victims, and hopes that her efforts ultimately spare many others from taking this painful, senseless and preventable iatrogenic journey. Nicole, welcome. Thank you so much for taking time out at what must be a very busy time for you. And I wanted to ask a little bit about how it was you first came to be involved with World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day and all the events and activities that go on around it. Yeah, sure. Thanks so much, James, for having me to talk about World Benzo Day today. I got involved initially because I was injured by prescribed benzodiazepines. Um, I was initially prescribed them back in 2005 for some stress at work, and I took them for five years, um, developed tolerance withdrawal, although at the time I didn't know what it was, and once I figured out what was wrong with me five years later, I was um, negligently cold turkeyed from the drugs. So I'm still currently suffering from the neurotoxicity that they caused, which has unfortunately turned into a protracted syndrome that's persisted for many years. So when I was cold turkeyed in late 2010, I got online and found the benzodiazepine withdrawal support communities. Um, I was still incredibly sick during that time and for the first handful of years, so I wasn't really involved in anything during that time. Mm. But sometime around spring of 2016 or so, I was still sick enough where I couldn't work or um, leave the house or pretty much get out of bed. Um, but I was to the point where I was past having the super severe symptoms like akathisia and psychosis and paranoia. Mm. So I could manage some more distractions. Um, and anybody who's ever gone through benzodiazepine withdrawal or any psychiatric drug withdrawal, for that matter, knows the value of good distractions. So I was online and I saw something posted in one of the support groups about some new awareness day coming up on July 11th in honor of the benzodiazepine expert, Dr. Heather Ashton's birthday. Um, and I thought, well, that's interesting. Uh, and I went over and read their mission and their objectives. And I liked that they weren't anti-benzo, but instead pro-informed consent, um, pro-following recommended short-term guidelines, pro-allowing anyone who was already physically dependent to either stay on the drug or taper at a rate and speed that they determined. So I reached out 
and got in touch with the organizers and I volunteered. And I think at the time I said, um, Hey, you know, I just want to help with a t-shirt or a logo or something like that. And so they said, yes, sure. Okay. And we kind of went back and forth a little and that's where the WBAD globe logo that everybody might be familiar with was born into existence. And then from there, I kind of just stayed on the team and got more and more involved and um, started doing content creation for educational materials and the website, um, doing some social media stuff, making videos, pretty much anything else that needs to be done to keep WBAD going um, from day to day. And you would think because WBAD is just one day a year that it would be easy, but it's actually a lot of work. So we're always looking for help. If other people are finding themselves in the same place that I was, you know, looking for a good distraction. And as far as becoming a state rep, I only signed up uh, to be the Virginia rep this year. Um, And so far, the only thing I've done for that is written some letters to my state medical board and legislatures. Just really worried that a lot of the benzodiazepine legislation is being lumped in with the opiates. Mm. And that that's kind of dangerous. So I think it's better if we're, you know, if benzo wise people or people who've been through this firsthand kind of have a say in it with our state reps and our state medical boards. And down the line, I guess, in Virginia, as the state rep, I have more plans to organize local events and things in Virginia, maybe some in-person initiatives, but I'm just not quite there yet with my healing. So that's for the future. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Nicole, I have so much admiration for what you and all the other volunteers have achieved with WBAD because it's such an important focal point to use to build awareness and understanding. And Nicole, you mentioned the community there. So what is it like for you being part of this Benzo community? Hmm, Thanks, James. Um, Gosh, I think if you ask anybody in the Benzo community, they would say it's kind of a double-edged experience. I mean, definitely not something any of us planned for. And if we had the choice, we definitely would not have signed up for this. You know, we were just going along, living our lives, prescribed this benzodiazepine. We took it like our doctor told us to, had no idea there was any cause for concern. And then this train of life kind of derailed and crashed into benzo land and we're all ejected and we wake up and we're just in this rubble together. And it's a depressing and scary community to be a part of. I mean, you're surrounded by people who are scared, um, filled with despair. They're anxious, hopeless, and desperate in the midst of this medical crisis. Um, A lot of them are suicidal. Some of them actually complete suicide. So we're surrounded by that. Um, I've actually lost people that I grew to be really close with in this community to suicide. So there's that aspect of things. Um, it's also frustrating sometimes to be part of this community, James, because just seeing so much of this preventable negligence that's going on, this class of meds has been around for six decades now. There's still not enough research into what this is doing to people, and there's really no medical consensus even. Um, they're still debating if what's happened to us is real or if you know, we're just hysterical malingerers. For example, there's this psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Carl Salzman out of Massachusetts. 
And he's gone on record saying that benzodiazepine withdrawal is no worse than caffeine withdrawal from coffee. And then he actually says to people, try it for yourself. And so, you know, we agree mild withdrawal like that is true probably for a percentage of patients. But for those of us who've been devastated by this medication, it's insulting and it's dangerous if we, you know, come across a provider like that when we're in the midst of this medical crisis. And then um, Dr. Salzman, he's also part of what looks to be a pro-benzo international task force that's just formed. Mm. So on the flip side of that, then you have psychiatrists like Dr. Alan Francis, who refers to that pro-benzo task force as, quote, like putting lipstick on a pig. And Dr. Francis is very vocal about the risks and dangers of benzodiazepines. So really, the medical community can't even get on the same page. And then people are surprised that that there's so many benzo-injured patients that we're just being given so much bad information and left out to dry and there's nowhere to turn. So that said, I don't want to imply that all medical providers are bad. I actually have a psychiatrist who helps me um, and has followed me through my entire ordeal, and she's been amazing and totally open-minded. Um, and I don't want to make it sound like being a part of this community is all bad. <laughs> There's some really good stuff, too. I mean, these people who are getting through this horrific time in their life and this suffering are fighters. Um, they're strong and they're determined. They survive and hold hope and fight back and campaign year-round, um, most of them. Um, from their beds and their homes where they are trapped, you know, some of them with agoraphobia and they're suffering. And it's pretty cool, too, to um, celebrate people who finish their tapers or who turn a big corner in their healing. They start feeling really great again. So it's not all bad. And I've made some, I think, lifelong friends who I probably otherwise never would have crossed paths with. So in the end, though, if I'm being totally honest, I'm I'm ready for the next train to come take me out of benzo land, you know, onto healing. But yeah, it's been a journey for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I understand. I think so many in the community find a lifeline in it, even though, as you say, it can be a very bitter experience to be part of a club that you don't want to belong to. I think the community has been instrumental in changing the minds of many doctors who are now open to the potential for harm. And Nicole, if we can move on now to talk a little more about WBAD. So could you tell us about some of the events and activities that are going on this year? Yeah, sure. Um, there's lots of exciting things going on, actually, which is great. I feel like every year WBAD just gets bigger and bigger, which is exactly what we want. And there's so many creative and talented people who come out and expand our reach and impact every year. So um, the first big thing for 2018 is we launched a t-shirt campaign this year, and we did it with two other groups. We did it with Benzodiazepine Information Coalition, which is a nonprofit. They go by BIC for short, and um, As Prescribed, which is a documentary and production about iatrogenic benzodiazepine illness. Um, the shirts on the front contain the word invisible and the IN in the word is kind of faded and the visible part of the word is very bold and underneath the word visible are the three logos of WBAD, BIC and as prescribed and it's really just meant to represent that 
in unity, these groups that are really comprised of the benzodiazepine injured community, plus all of our friends and our families and neighbors and doctors, everyone who supports us, will basically together make this invisible, largely ignored illness that we have into something that's known and visible. We also hope the shirts would be conversation starters, like people would say, why are you invisible or what does that mean? Um, to give people a chance to talk about benzodiazepine injury. And the fundraiser um, was a success selling the shirts. We made more than $1,100, which we um, put towards the documentary and production as prescribed. So thanks to everybody who got a t-shirt this year. And then on the books too, WBAT and BIC both have some um, videos launching on our YouTube channel. Dr. Christy Huff, who is the co-director at BIC, has written a blog um, aimed at her medical peers. She's a physician cardiologist who um, is iatrogenically injured herself by benzodiazepines, and she's been really a great bridge into the medical community, which is vital. Wayne Douglas, who is WBAD's founder and organizer, will be on the Dr. Peter Bregan Hour on PRN FM radio at 4 p.m. New York time, talking about benzos. And then there's um, people gathering all over the world for pamphlet distributions in Auckland City, New Zealand, Paris City Hall, France, Boston, Massachusetts, Torrington, Connecticut. And I think as prescribed, the documentary plans to be on location in Connecticut and Boston filming. Japan, um, who's really showed up and represented WBAD since the first year, they're going to be doing another pamphlet campaign and meeting with the Ministry of Health, which is the third year um, meeting with them. And they've actually had some success from those meetings. Um, The language in the Benzo pamphlet inserts were changed from implying that large repeated doses caused physical dependence to just that repeated doses caused physical dependence. So huge success in Japan. And then in the UK, there is a withdrawal charity called The Rest Project. They're also going to be doing a pamphlet campaign. And um, incidentally, The Rest Project's funding has been pulled which is kind of sad news. Um, The REST team, when we were communicating about what they were planning to do for WBAD, were kind of down in the dumps about that. And it's just, it just goes to show, you know, that's exactly opposite of what needs to be happening. These specialized withdrawal charities should be templates for what we need to be doing, um, how we need to be expanding and adding these deprescribing clinics that are specialized in helping people with benzodiazepine and even SSRI withdrawal, um, and instead we're closing them down. So that's really um, unfortunate. Um, Anyways, those are just some of the events we have planned and we're made aware of. I'm sure there's individual stuff that's going to be popping up too. Lots of people will make YouTube videos or they'll go out in their own towns and do their own solo pamphlet um, campaigns. Most of that stuff can be found at w-bad.org slash events. And then on our Facebook and Twitter at World Benzo Day or under the hashtag World Benzo Day. And then last but not least, there's this podcast, James, which I'm excited to hear in its entirety. I haven't heard the whole thing. So yeah, lots of stuff on 
the WVAD 2018 agenda, and um, it'll probably take me a week to get through it all because there's usually so much material that pops up, at least in prior years, that it takes me a long time to get through, which is awesome. That's the whole the whole plan, right? Well, that's incredible. You guys have got so much going on and achieved so much. And I have to say, the T-shirt campaign is just stunning. I love the design. I think it's a really powerful message. And I'm sure it's brought a lot more people to the cause, both those who've experienced this, friends, family members, but most importantly, doctors who do need to know more about these issues. So, Nicole, for people out there listening, how can they get involved? And not just for this World Benzo Day, but for future ones too. How can they pitch in and help? Well, there's you know, so many ways that people can participate. We try to, you know, keep in mind that people aren't well. And so you can participate just doing things that are super easy, like just sharing other people's contributions on social media or changing your profile picture, or you can get super involved, um, creating your own materials that are educational or writing a blog post or, you know, someone could get on a podcast or contact maybe a local newspaper and tell their story. So Basically, people should, people should just ask themselves, you know, if the idea that they have um, is in line with WBAD's mission and objectives, and if it brings awareness and education around benzodiazepines being prescribed and causing um, harms, then yeah, that's a way to participate. We like to point out that one of the most important ways to participate is reporting adverse effects and withdrawal reactions to the appropriate entity, depending on where you live. So in the United States, it's the FDA MedWatch program. In the UK, the Yellow Card Scheme. All of these are um, linked up on WVAD's website under the campaign section on the front page. And if anybody needs help, you know, completing the form, I know Dr. Christy Huff over at BIC has volunteered in the past to help, but yeah, just contact us and we can get somebody to assist you in completing the form. Only about 1% of those serious events ever get reported to the FDA, so that's a pretty grim statistic and we're really hoping to change that. Another important way to participate is to take to YouTube and social media and post videos or written testimony publicly. Um, I know later in this podcast, James, you interview a physician by the name of Dr. Witt Daring, and he's a co-author of an article in Psychiatric Times called Online Communities for Drug Withdrawal, What Can We Learn? And I think if people um, go and read that article, they'll see that just showing up in the forums and putting your stories out on YouTube um, in that article they mentioned, you know, they found us in the forums and they found 14,000 video blogs from those injured by benzodiazepine. Um, and from finding us, you know, Dr. Whit Daring and his colleagues um, made some pretty great conclusions that I think were spot on. So um, I think that article will probably be linked with this podcast and people should definitely check it out. Um, there's also been things like, um, there was a birth control system not too many years ago called Eshore, and it harmed a lot of women. And the FDA reported that they went on and they found 20,000 complaints on Facebook and Twitter from women who were injured. Probably the reason they went looking on Twitter and Facebook is because there had been a lot of adverse event reports filed. So, yeah, I mean, People are finding us and they're looking and they're important people that we want to hear us 
So definitely sharing our stories um, is having some kind of impact, I think. And even if, you know, the Dr. Witt Darings of the world and the FDA aren't listening, you know, you might put your story out there on video or your typed written testimony and someone, you know, sitting at their computer doing a Google search about their medication might come across it. And finally, the light bulb goes off as to what's been happening to them all this time. I know for me, that's exactly how I found out what was wrong with me. Um, I found Matt Samet's testimony in a magazine that he wrote and instantly, you know, put the puzzle pieces together that my drug was the problem. So, and I just like to mention that WBAD really is for anybody. It's not just for people who are damaged by these drugs. Um, it's for their families and friends. Last year, some caregivers participated and made videos, which was really awesome. And then there's a subset of people, too, who were probably injured um, and who get better after some time. You know, people don't stay sick forever, thankfully. And since WBAD is just one day a year, we hope some of those um, people who are healed will come back and visit us and offer some hope or some testimony. But if they don't have time, you know, organizations like um, BIC and as prescribed always need some kind of um, monetary support so people can make tax deductible donations and that can be a way of um, supporting WBAT or participating <laughs> as well. So yeah, really, if people want a full list of ideas for participation, they can go to the participate tab on w-bad.org. Great. Thank you, Nicole. Everything that's been done is so impressive. And WBAD is such an important focal point for awareness raising and taking action. And it's making a huge difference. Doctors and psychiatrists are writing about this more and more, and people are sharing their stories widely. So I just thank you and all the people involved for such a brilliant day. Thank you so much, James. And thanks for your support too. This this podcast has been such a monumental contribution and i know you did the one last year too so you're participating in wbad too well thank you nicole i'm honored to stand shoulder to shoulder with you and others who have been through such tough experiences but still are putting themselves out there to help others i have such admiration for that me too james thank you and i'd just like to thank everybody on team wbad all the other interviewees on this episode, and anybody who comes out in support of World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day 2018. Thanks so much. Bye. Well, I want to thank Nicole for chatting with me about WBAD. And as a reminder, here are the details if you'd like to get involved. The website can be found at w-bad.org. And if you'd like to find out more about the t-shirt campaign, you can visit inktothepeople.com forward slash visible. To find WBAD on Facebook and Twitter, it's at WorldBenzoDay, and the official hashtag is WorldBenzoDay. And finally, I'd like to thank all of the volunteers that work so hard to make WorldBenzoDay the success that it is. My next guest is psychiatrist Dr. Josef Witt-Dering. Josef trained in Queensland, Australia, before becoming a psychiatric resident at Baylor College of Medicine, Houston, Texas. He recently co-authored a paper published in Psychiatric Times entitled Online Communities for Drug Withdrawal, What Can We Learn?, which has received praise for openly addressing the issues of dependence and withdrawal and identifying the huge amount of support activity that goes on in forums like Benzo Buddies and Surviving Antidepressants. 
Dr. Whit Dering, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today for the Madden America podcast. And to begin, I'd like to ask a little about you and your background and what led you towards psychiatry. Sure. So I guess I, I grew up in Sydney, Australia, and I went to the University of Queensland and did med school there and then um, living in Houston, Texas now. So after med school, I went to the US to look for training, wanted to travel a little bit. And um, I'm currently doing research around, a lot around antidepressant side effects, specifically suicidality. And, um, you know, this work has involved forays into, you know, other literature such as the benzodiazepines as well. And um, kind of ultimately see myself moving into a career in, um, I guess, responsible use of drugs, drug safety and, and public health. And as for going into psychiatry, I mean, I think just psychiatric patients have always been the most interesting to me. It's a frontier in medicine with, you know, so many unknowns diagnostically and also with treatment. So um, I always found it fascinating. I read with interest that you spent part of your rotation treating inmates in a county jail setting in 2016. And I know that many people are familiar with illicit drug issues in prisons, but I assume there must also be quite an issue with psychiatric prescription drugs and presumably benzodiazepines are part of that too. So I I hadn't actually experienced a lot of... um, uh, a lot of contact with uh, patients going through benzodiazepine withdrawal um, or antidepressant withdrawal there. But what I could imagine happening is that people would be going through very abrupt benzodiazepine withdrawals when they go into prison. You know, Some drugs have street value in prison, things like benzodiazepines, Wellbutrin, um, and Seroquel. So you know, a lot of times people coming into correctional facilities are rapidly withdrawn from from these medications within a period of you know a week or two and placed on other ones. So just by um, by those limitations, I think a lot of people will go through quite acute and rapid withdrawal from from these drugs. So you know it it's it, yeah it, it would certainly be an environment where you'd see things like that happen. Many people listening will be aware that sudden withdrawal from drugs like benzodiazepines can result in symptoms that are easily confused with a psychiatric disorder. So I wondered if we have the expertise in prisons to recognize this and to support those who may be affected. I guess it would be um, dependent on the provider there. You'd hope that they'd be able to pick up on things like that and then be able to make cases for exceptions for people to be on uh, longer tapers from these medications if needed. However, you know, if it's not widely recognized, even amongst uh, a lot of psychiatrists, you know, it's, it's probably pretty grim that it would be widely recognized in the, in the correctional facilities as well, unfortunately. I'd like to move on now to ask about your recent piece in Psychiatric Times, Online Communities for Drug Withdrawal, What Can We Learn? Firstly, I'd like to thank you because that was one of the few articles I've ever seen, certainly in a psychiatry-focused publication, that openly discussed the issues of dependence and withdrawal from psychotropic medications. So what led you and your co-authors down the path of researching and writing that article? So... I guess it's kind of a long story, but you know, I really, I really should say, given that this is the, I guess, the Man in America podcast, that um, uh, what first piqued my interest in medication side effects was actually, uh, I guess, the very controversial Anatomy of an Epidemic, which I read probably three years ago. And um, for me, anyway, once I started looking at some of the consequences of psychiatric medication use, CNS drug use, from a critical perspective. I sort of naturally began to pay more attention to the possibilities of iatrogenic side effects. And then once I began to notice this in practice, you know, I, I, I have situations when I talk to patients that had no history of drug abuse 
and who were started on perfectly reasonable prescribed doses of antidepressants or benzos, which were overseen by doctors, and they were having terrible times discontinuing treatment. And, um, you know, oftentimes they'd share stories of being characterized as being drug-seeking in the withdrawal process, or they'd end up on cocktails of antidepressants and antipsychotics. And, yeah, I began to recognize this a lot as a problem. And then I think out of curiosity, I stumbled upon Benzo Buddies on, on, on Google. And, yeah, I found a lot of really relevant uh, information there, which I wanted to write about. And were you surprised at the extent of online sharing of personal experiences of dependence and withdrawal when you started your research? Because... You mentioned some figures in that piece. For example, that Benzo Buddies are getting a quarter of a million internet hits a month. I was. I mean, these are huge forums. And I mean, this isn't just a couple of people talking about it. It's a lot of people coming. But, you know, it it was also reflecting what I was seeing in daily practice, that this was a common problem that I was seeing, um, you know, on a weekly basis. Within the sharing, though, you know, what, what really struck me being, you know, I guess I'm sort of an advanced psychiatric trainee at the moment, so still fairly early in my career, was really the, um, the disappointing experiences that they were having with, um, with their doctors, you know, the lack of re- uh, recognition, the misdiagnoses, and, um, you know, that was, that was what really surprised me on the forum. And so, as you note in that article, and you mentioned there also, People report that quite often doctors remain unaware and lack the guidance to respond effectively to the wide range of withdrawal experiences that people have. So I wondered what feedback you'd had from colleagues on that piece. That's, a, that's an interesting question because I think, I think a lot of the times, you know, being familiar with Madden America and um, uh, the writings up there, there, there's a sense that the psychiatric establishment may be sort of uh, not wanting to recognize um, these issues. And and I really didn't have that when I put this piece in. And maybe it's because it came from, you know, I guess a psychiatrist within the U.S. Um, with co-authors that are quite well recognized in their field. But it received very positive um, feedback from, from the Psychiatric Times. I mean, they gave uh, really good constructive feedback. They, they were happy with the piece. And then afterwards, they even published a follow-up commentary by, I think, Dr. Phelps reinforced many of the same points and then they sent out the piece again on the lift serve recently as the most clicked article so they're circulating it and um, I really haven't heard any criticisms for the main thrust of the article which was that you know antidepressants and benzo withdrawal is under recognized and a lot of people are in serious trouble so as for negative feedback nothing what was nice was was all the positive feedback I got from a lot of people actually doing advocacy work in this area. Mm. So that was really nice. Well, I'm really heartened to hear that psychiatry is writing about this issue and taking notice of it. And again, in that piece, you mentioned that recognition that a patient has incurred an iatrogenic complication is essential in the recovery process. But in the UK, and I believe the US too, the reluctance of general doctors and psychiatrists to admit or recognize dependence and withdrawal seems to hamper that process of recovery. So how should we go about communicating the difficulties that so many have with dependence and withdrawal so as to allow prescribers to take the issue seriously and be better prepared to help those who have suffered iatrogenic harm? Gosh, it's it's a good question. And this is, um, this is kind of hard because being a trainee at the moment and being recently out of med school, being in an academic setting, I'm really at the center of kind of where sort of ideas about psychiatry are. Um, psych- ideas about medicine as well are. And, and what I find is that this issue is really not on the radar 
you know, for medical students, for trainees, and, you know, I, I don't really hear a lot of, um, I guess, faculty talking about it. And I don't think it's because they think it's, you know, not valid. It's, it's just that it's kind of drowned out. And what I mean by that is, you know, a, a doctor is more likely to hear that benzodiazepines are, drug, are drugs of abuse and cause dependence. And therefore, you know, when they come across someone that's having a hard time coming off them, they're going to characterize it as a problem of addiction and dependence rather than as a neurological insult, which is, which is a big problem. And I think, you know, if we're, we're looking at where these memes happen or where these, like, these widespread ideas come from, a lot of it has to do, I guess, with marketing. And I know when the antidepressants came in and they overtook benzos as the go-to drug for depression and anxiety, you know, there was a war chest of resources that got behind um, this message that these were dangerous dependents forming uh, drugs of abuse, which, which you know, they, they can be, certainly. But, you know, that ended up equaling anyone coming off benzodiazepines. It's just a withdrawal problem. It's just a benzodiazepine, you know, and, and they'll be able to come off it soon. And if they don't, then, you know, they have, um, I guess, drug addiction or something like that. Uh, on another level, what I see is the rise of, um, you know, a lot of talk about treatment-resistant anxiety and depression and I think this has come with sort of the atypical antipsychotics, which are really kind of dominating, trying to dominate the market at the moment. And, you know, when all of this uh, marketing stuff is out there saying, you know, does your patient have treatment-resistant depression? Does that, do they have treatment-resistant anxiety? Have you considered Abilify? Have you considered Seroquel? You know, the, the idea of a treatment-resistant depression or anxiety is much more at the front of your doctor's mind than, say, some unknown tardive um, side effect that really doesn't happen in a lot of people, but, you know, is, is common enough. They're more likely to say, you know, I've never really heard of that, but I have heard of treatment-resistant depression, so let's try an, an antidepressant, antipsychotic. So you get a lot of decision-making um, from providers that come across patients going through benzo withdrawal, and it's really driven, I think, more so by these messages and I guess in, in order to combat this, uh, in order to get the message out there, we'd need to have, I think, you know, more resources and more people talking about this problem. And um, uh, I guess uh, a further coordinated effort getting getting the message out. Otherwise, I think it, it really gets drowned out by the, by the other huge messages that are sort of bombarding doctors. Well, I've heard doctors in the UK report that they fear inaction. They want to be seen to be taking some physical action, such as prescribing or referring in response to their patient's distress, which is understandable, of course. But watchful waiting is often talked about, but seems to remain a difficult thing for a doctor to decide to do for their patient. I think it can be. Um, but I think that could change, you know, if if there's more sort of communication about the prognosis of these conditions and they could be more optimistic and watchful waiting. And that was a, a common thing that people thought about, you know, then hopefully a lot of providers would be more comfortable saying, hey, you know, this is going to get better. I know this is terrible now. Make um, make arrangements in your life to ride through this. I'm going to be here with you. We're going to be able to be flexible with this and it's going to be okay. Yeah, I think more people just need to be aware of the problem and what the prognosis is and how to help people. Absolutely. And Josef, I wanted to ask if your own experiences in your research have informed your own approach to prescribing drugs that have a dependence potential. I definitely say that it has influenced the way I prescribe. Um, and I think a lot of it was, you know, learning learning about the research. I mean, a lot of the research for benzo, benzodiazepines, anything, pretty much all psychiatric medications, 
these are pretty short trials when they come onto the market. And you realize that uh, the trials are designed to kind of look for efficacy and then, I guess, sort of side effects that are voluntarily, vol voluntarily reported uh, throughout the, the, the time of the treatment. And then there's not a lot of uh, research out there which is actually powered to detect, you know, these complex, these complex problems which seem to be emerging after long-term treatment. So you end up being kind of skeptical a little bit about how, I guess, side effects are talked about, you know, the, the risk and benefit sort of profile that, that you hear. I find I'm much more uh, likely to, to really consider, I think, case reports, case series, anecdotes, uh, what you will when, when, when people come in and say, hey, I'm having a hard time. Um, I think it might be due to this medication or stopping this medication. So I think, you know, as a, you know, as a young provider, as someone going into this, I'm very aware of the risks and the benefits of starting people on medications and sort of communicating to them what this might entail. And it, it's a complicated decision because there's so many unknowns. You know, obviously, a lot of people coming off benzos don't have a problem saying with antidepressants. But there is a small but, you know, growing percentage of people that do. So, you know, communicating those things and balancing the risks is is always at the forefront of my mind. And, um, and yeah, so look, looking into this whole issue, it certainly has changed the way I, I prescribe. And also a lot of my colleagues who I talk to about this as well. So Absolutely. And I've also heard doctors say that although they would like their patients to know all the pros and cons of treatment, Sometimes they don't feel the patient can handle knowing all the facts, so maybe telling them the medication they're prescribing might be difficult to come off at some point in the future. And that is a difficult question, isn't it? Do you give the patient all the facts, even though you know that may result in the patient not adhering to treatment or even risking frightening them? It's a difficult judgment call to make, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, my, my, my knee-jerk reaction to that is it sounds, um, I guess, you know, kind of paternalistic, maybe a little bit too paternalistic for me. Mm. I would think that, you know, obviously you, you may not say everything to them because there are obviously hundreds of side effects, but you want to talk about the ones that really have life-changing consequences. You know, you know, things like, you know, withdrawal problems when, you know, if they get so bad, you have to quit your job or you have to take some time off school. So yes, I would say it can be, it can be challenging, but, um, you know, I think the most important side effects need to be uh, discussed with the patient. And it was as for as for treatment adherence and you know concerns about that. Um, this is sort of um, I guess maybe may very optimistic, but I, I like to, I'd like to think you know that if you can talk with a patient and really talk about the pros and cons, then um, they're going to be be able to decide whether they want to take the medication um, consistently or how they're going to want to take it, and they're going to be able to talk to you about it, and you're probably going to be in, 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 in an agreement. I think if you know, you're really sort of in sync with how the patient is feeling, that hopefully there's not going to be a lot of situations unless, except in the, you know, the severely ill where they're not going to be taking a medication where you want them to um, be on it. Thank you. And in the UK, there are a very small number of charities with dedicated withdrawal services that specialise in prescribed drug dependence, often alongside substance abuse services. Do you foresee a need for similar services in the US, or maybe even that deprescribing will become a medical specialty of its own in response to this growing problem? So... Certainly, I think there's going to be a need for similar groups here. Um, I think one—I mean, one such nonprofit that I know about—it's the, the Benzodiazepine Information Coalition. 
And I think they're doing a really great job getting information out here, helping people link up with providers. Um, as for actually sort of brick and mortar places where people can go for withdrawal services, I'm not really aware of that. I'm sure there, there probably are um, places like this around the country, but none that, um, I guess, none, none that are widely known to me. As for a medical specialty, you know, maybe, maybe a medical specialty is needed. What I'd really hope, though, is that most psychiatrists would just learn to handle these issues. I mean, they are they are complicated, but they're not overwhelmingly complex. Uh, a lot of the time, they just require recognition and then um, patience and uh, optimism. So I'd hope that, you know, our premier professional groups, groups like the APA, the um, professional organizations for family uh, medicine, for uh, obstetrics and gynecology, all the groups that prescribe a lot of benzos and antidepressants, that they would be more involved in a process called academic detailing, which is where sort of independent academics go out and give non-biased information about drugs. If they could invest maybe more in academic detailing programs to raise awareness about these issues and disseminate it amongst their constituents, uh, hopefully they'll be able to get really sort of the masses of these professionals to to be able to learn about de-prescribing. So I, I don't think it is overly overly complex once it's recognized absolutely and i guess part of the issue is how we develop a standard response to these issues certainly in the uk and i imagine the usa too if you go to your doctor or psychiatrist with an issue that you believe is withdrawal related then the response you get from your doctor can vary wildly everything from no this is not possible all the way to yes i've seen this before a number of times let's get you some specialist help so I wonder if the lack of both research and recognition is perhaps hampering the development of a standard effective response to these dependence and withdrawal issues. Yes, overwhelmingly yes. Yeah, that I, I completely, I completely see that. You know, there's, I think you know, even amongst probably psychiatrists, it's it's not known as as well as it should be, and that only makes you wonder how well it's known amongst the other main prescribers like the family doctors and the um, gynecologists out there. So I think there's a huge lack of recognition. There's, there's I've, no doubt about that. Thank you. And I also wanted to get your thoughts on some of the language used around the issues that we've been discussing, because that can sometimes also be a barrier to gaining recognition and awareness. You know, I listened to that podcast you sent me that you did uh, last time with uh, Jocelyn Peterson and I thought the point that she made really was just she she talked something about like trying to get away from the language of addiction and dependence and towards the I guess the the language of a central nervous system injury. I mean that was I thought that was you know really beautifully said and I think if people started looking at this problem in terms of a so yeah like she said a, a brain injury or a central nervous system injury especially once it's lasted more than a couple of weeks, you know, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, six weeks. After that, I mean, we're not really talking about like a withdrawal problem where, you know, if you go down slowly, you're going to be able to prevent these symptoms. Like we're, we're talking about something that's, 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 that's changed in your central nervous system and needs to be, you know, just take time to recover from. I think that is like the best way to look at the problems that are happening with the benzos and the antidepressants and, you know, these other medications that are, having these very protracted withdrawal periods. So I, I guess that would just be one last piece that I'd say was was awesome and I think is really key to understanding this issue. Thank you. And finally, as this is World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day, 
I wondered what you thought the community of those harmed by benzodiazepine dependence and withdrawal issues could do on a practical level to raise awareness and push for more responsible prescribing. Is it to continue to share their experiences? Is it to push for better informed consent or perhaps laws restricting prescribers to short-term prescribing only? What can the community do to engage with the medical profession to hopefully reduce the potential for iatrogenic harm? Uh, yeah, so uh, certainly keep on sharing your stories with, I guess, uh, out, out there um, because it, it's really helpful for people that get lost and find themselves, um, you know, without answers and their doctors aren't able to help them and they find their communities online. I think all those stories are really helpful in helping people know they're not alone. I think on a, on a, on a practical level, though, um, you know, re- research-wise, the, the t- maybe the tides are turning a little bit. I mean, I, I read Malcolm Later's um, systematic review recently. I think he oversaw a systematic review on benzodiazepine sort of uh, withdrawal problems. So, there is some research out there done by you know, very credible people like that um, professor and perhaps coordinated, um, I guess, petitions to groups like uh, professional organizations. Like I know in the U.S. it would be the APA or the American Academy of Family Physicians or the American College for Obstetrics and Gynecologists. And if people sort of approach them, I guess, with, um, you know, with research and ask them to invest, I guess, more in academic detailing, education for their constituents and said, hey, this is a big problem. Look at this. Look at all the people that are harmed by this. We, you know, we really want your help with this. Could you, um, you know, invest in educating some of your constituents about this to help us out? I guess other places that people could go would be to do similar things with the boards that license the providers. So, you know, you go to the boards that license psychiatrists, family doctors and uh, OBGYNs and, and see if they could uh, have a conversation about mandating some minimal training in this area, at least to get recognition into the uh, curriculum um, uh, for, for these doctors prior to graduation. And then finally, um, as for the research, so many people that have these, um, these legacy effects or tardive effects or neurological, ins- uh, neurological damage after being on these medications and they've, they've come off them, and even like six weeks later, they're still having significant problems. You know, th- these patients are in a limbo and there's no real groups that are actually doing research in this area. So perhaps to go to government and lodge a petition or something like that to establish funds for research specifically in this area and um, attract researchers who are interested in this and who can look at further validating what's going on and then looking for treatments for those that are already suffering. I think as for the, I think you mentioned also um, mandating, I guess, short prescribing periods. It's hard to say whether I think that would be a good idea because it's so um, it's so variable. I mean, some people will do um, well on uh, benzodiazepines for you know thirty years or something. Low dose clonopin, 0.5 BID. You see them and they and they're fine for thirty years and it's and it helps them and they say it helps them and it's kind of like who am I to say that they should only be on it for a short period of time it's 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 a hard issue you know we, we we don't know who's going to you know develop dependence quickly and then end up with with a lot of problems so i guess i i, I would sort of say we need a little bit of a bit more flexibility there rather than just saying these are only short-term medications because you know there are those few people that do well on them long time long term as well but we probably need to recognize and do more research into finding out 
who those people are. Maybe we can predict who those people are that are not going to have problems and the people who are going to have problems. That's, I think, uh, I guess the future of research in uh, responsible prescribing of um, these drugs. Well, Josef, thank you for taking the time to talk today. And I also want to thank you for writing your paper because that paper, when I read it, I saw as a real olive branch to say to psychiatrists, look, guys, there's something happening here that we are not plugged into. And to say to users, your activity in all these forums is being put in front of professional psychiatrists who may well visit and see for themselves what's happening. I think you've done a great thing and started bridge building, which is so needed and so important. I think it will get people talking about these issues, which is exactly what we want. Thank you so much for the, um, for, you know, what what is really, uh, really a nice compliment and something great for me to hear early on in my career when I'm doing things like that. So um, I really appreciate it, James. So I just want to thank Joseph for chatting. And if you'd like to read the paper that we referred to in the interview, you can find a link in the post that accompanies this podcast on maddenamerica.com. Our next guest is Chris Page. Chris has a bit of an inside perspective to add to the conversation for World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day in that he's a licensed therapist of over 20 years who was also iatrogenically injured by a prescribed benzodiazepine. Chris has practiced in a variety of settings, including hospitals, schools, and foster homes, and has taught at the undergraduate and graduate level. He's presented papers at national and international conferences, appeared on Dateline NBC for his work with children of divorce, and had his own national magazine column called On the Couch with Chris Page. He has been in private practice since 1998, and provides trauma resolution coaching to clients across the nation. He believes that effective body-based psychotherapy can significantly reduce an individual's reliance on anxiety medications like benzodiazepines, as well as many other drugs, and dramatically improve mental and physical health. Chris is on the board of the Benzodiazepine Information Coalition, who are a non-profit organisation that advocates for greater understanding of the potentially devastating effects of commonly prescribed benzodiazepines, as well as prevention of patient injury through medical recognition, informed consent and education. Chris currently resides and practices in Florida. Welcome, Chris, and thank you so much for joining us today for this third annual World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day. And to begin, I wanted to ask if you could tell us a little bit about you and how you first came to be prescribed a benzodiazepine. Well, first off, thank you, James, uh, for having me today. Uh, My first exposure to a benzodiazepine came in the year 2000. Uh, I had just gone through a divorce Um, and had a lot of stress, uh, a lot of change, and actually had run into my ex-wife the night before and saw her with her new boyfriend, which was quite upsetting. And the following day, I was actually in uh, a study group with another woman who was in my PhD program at the time, and she saw how agitated I was and how upset I was, and she said, hey, uh, I have this this medicine I take for anxiety. It might help you. And so she gave me a half milligram tablet of clonopin, which I took. And within ten to fifteen minutes, um, I felt mar- you know markedly better. Um, the racing thoughts, the agitation, the anxiety was all gone, as if the air had been let out of a balloon. But little did I know that uh, I had been introduced to the ultimate Trojan horse which was going to get through my defenses and kind of set up shop in my body. And I took that medication 
uh, every day for the following three years, not thinking there was any risk. No doctor had ever told me there was any potential risk, not even of dependence at that point. And I started noticing I was getting some tremors and some memory loss. So I schedule an appointment with a neurologist who shockingly in the year 2000 said to me, I think you're having issues from your sudden cessation of the clonopin you were taking. I'd recommend you go back on a dose and taper. He, of course, told me nothing about how to taper or any idea on how to do the, go through this process. But he at least was wise enough to help me understand it was uh, the clonopin that was causing those issues. Those issues weren't that severe. I was working. I was socializing. Um, and I probably tapered a milligram and a half of clonopin over three to four months, yeah. which, as I know now, is hyperspeed. But I was able to get off without much incident. And I think it was because I was able to get off without much incident that it didn't leave me with a substantial scar that would prevent me from ever using that medication again. And Chris, what dosage of clonopin were you taking? As I know now, it was probably an average to a little high, about a milligram and a half to two milligrams a day. Mm. But at that time, nobody even mentioned my dose at all. Um, nobody was alarmed. I'd seen a few different doctors and um, to get you know to get the medication, and nobody had it, it given me any alert to whether I was on a high dose or whether it would be something I would need to taper or whether it would be something that could down the line cause issues. And how did you feel when your neurologist identified that it might be coming off the drugs that was causing your issues? You mentioned that you hadn't been warned, so was that a shock? How did you feel on hearing that it could be down to the drugs? I think it was more just a relief almost that I could target what was causing the symptoms I was having. Hmm. Because I, I was worried that I was in the early onset stages of something like multiple sclerosis or something. Um, and fortunately, you know, I had a, um, an EKG and an EEG done and, and everything came back normal. But uh, nobody was alarmed. Um, you know, at least it, it gave me, you know, I felt at that time kind of a get out of jail card where I could at least have a, a plan um, to get off the drug, although obviously I was given no guidance. And so what happened next in your story, Chris? You mentioned that you were part of a detox program. So how did that come about? Well, what basically what happened was uh, about a decade later, um, I had a prostate infection and I was given a drug called Cipro, which is an antibiotic in the class of fluoroquinolones. And when I started taking it, within a week or two, I developed some bizarre psychiatric symptoms, insomnia, anxiety, agitation, which I attributed to life stress at that point, because at that point I had no concept that an antibiotic could actually cause psychiatric symptoms. Mm. And of course, my urologist didn't say anything. And because I was having so much agitation and insomnia, I asked my primary doctor for 10 one milligram clonopin tablets, and she gave me 20, obviously, because she had no concern about them. Mm. Um, and over the next 10 weeks, I took a total of 16 milligrams, uh, averaging about a quarter milligram to a half milligram every three to four days. I'm not abusing them, actually taking them much less than they were prescribed. Mm. And because the fluoroquinolone and the benzodiazepine actually compete at the same receptor in the brain, at the GABA receptor, the benzos actually weren't working anymore. And I went into 
immediately into a tolerance situation where I had to take the drug, but it was giving me no effect. And in actuality, it was having a paradoxical effect where I was becoming more sleepless, uh, more agitated, more anxious. And my family was getting worried. I wasn't in a good place mentally. Um, I was terrified because I was getting to a point where it was becoming increasingly hard to work and to function. And against my better judgment and the information I gathered, I consented to fly from Florida to Vermont to go to a five-day detox program, mm. which promised that they could get me off the medication without incident and that I would be fine. So I consented to the five-day detox program. One of the ironies of American detox programs is I think their length is actually not defined medically. It's actually defined by how many days your insurance will pay. Mm. Um, so mine would pay five, and I was on a milligram and a quarter at that point because I'd gotten some very bad information from another doctor who had updosed me 500% from a quarter milligram to a milligram and a quarter, which actually just made me much sicker. Mm. Um, so they took me off a milligram and a quarter in five days. Uh, and I called my mom the second day and I said, you know, I need to get out of here. This is not the right place for me. Mm -hmm. And because they were so worried and were honestly treating me from the paradigm of addiction, um, she said, I refuse to get you. And it literally felt like I could watch the gallows outside of my window and people being hung every day. And I knew that my time would be up in four days. Mm. And so it was terrifying and I was getting increasingly sick. I'd stopped sleeping again and the detox decided in their infinite wisdom to put me, to take me off the clonopin, but put me on four other medications mm. and to which four and a half years later, I still am trapped on two and will be tapering those over the next few years. Just think of the irony. If you went into a rehab for marijuana addiction and you came out on cocaine, heroin, crystal meth, and alcohol, um, it would seem incredibly ironic if you really took a step back and thought of it in those terms. Mm. Um, but the real risk and harm was the fact that by basically taking me off so quickly, it shocked my brain and my nervous system severely. Mm. Yeah. And it's just the most inappropriate way to take somebody off of a benzodiazepine or any psychiatric drug for that matter. And so Chris, what kind of state were you in when you came out of detox? What was life like for you? Because just five days seems a very short time to make those kinds of medication adjustments. Basically, um, I was hallucinating. I was so agitated that I could not sit. I was forced to go to an outpatient program right after. And within 24 hours of being in that outpatient program, I had told one too many people of my intent to harm myself. Mm. And so I was... Uh, the lucky recipient of another five days in a psychiatric ward, mm. which as a longtime mental health professional who had worked on the other side was possibly one of the most humiliating experiences I've ever endured. Um, I have so much empathy for any human that has ever had to go into a psychiatric ward because the treatment is barbaric. Mm. And 
the abject lack of knowledge of the potential side effects of the drugs being administered is borderline criminal. And in that psych ward, Chris, was there any recognition that what was happening to you was drug withdrawal related or related to iatrogenic harm? Not only that, but when I got my discharge from that, the psych, the attending psychiatrist wrote in my discharge summary, the client is delusional. He thinks he is still in benzodiazepine withdrawal. This was six days post cessation. That lack of recognition in itself is damaging and harmful, isn't it? And of no help to the person going through hell. Well, it makes you start to question everything in your being, your soul, your existence. All I wanted was to get better. All I wanted was to never take a benzodiazepine ever again in my life. All I wanted was to walk back into my life and pick up where I left off. I don't think those are unreasonable demands if somebody is willing to accept quote-unquote treatment. And Chris, you were obviously suffering a great deal during this time, but what issues or symptoms caused you the most difficulty? Well, the worst symptom that I had, um, and it is the worst symptom anyone can have, uh, is a symptom called akathisia. Mm. And what akathisia literally means in Greek is inability to sit. And it's a movement disorder where the agitation is so severe that you can't stay still. You have to move. But the movement gives no relief. And I had this for three years every day, from eight to 12 hours a day. And literally, I would be struck by lightning between 4.30 and 5 in the morning, jolted out of bed, and literally it would feel like somebody would pour a gallon of gasoline all over me, strike a match and light me on fire. And I would frantically pace the way someone would look if they were engulfed in flames for the next 8 to 12 hours, even with feet that were bleeding from open sores from all of the walking, I could not possibly sit. And I've done the calculation and the ballpark I've come up with is I actually had walked somewhere around 40 to 45,000 miles in three years. And every moment of those days, I wanted to end my life Mm -hmm. because the suffering was so severe and there was no way to get away from it. If you think about As humans, we have instincts built into us to get away from pain. If you think about if you've ever been at a campfire and you get too close to the campfire, your instinct kicks in and you naturally move away from the flames. Well, for three years, I couldn't move away from the flames. There was no escape. And not only was there no escape, but there was no treatment and no understanding. My 30-year experienced psychiatrist who I was seeing at the time for the medications I'd been placed on after the detox told me I had anticipatory anxiety. Okay. I guess I was anticipating being lit on fire. Yes, that was probably the case. Um, But I don't think he really grasped the severity. And what I think people don't realize is that I was in an acute medical crisis for three years. Yeah. 
and there's no help for that acute medical crisis. It, it was literally the equivalent of I was having a heart attack. You know, my life was literally in that degree of jeopardy. And while this was happening, did you have an understanding at that point that all of these issues were related to the medications or is it only looking back now? Because you must have been searching in your mind for a cause. I never questioned what was causing it because I knew it was the drugs. Mm. But what I questioned constantly was, was there a way to solve it? And I've always joked that I literally found the end of the internet. Um, I didn't think it was possible. And there is no pot of gold for anybody looking. There is no pot of gold at the end of the internet. But I literally had found, you know, I, again, my psychiatrist said to me, you know more about these drugs than I do. And I said to him, isn't that a problem? <laughs> Absolutely. And so how did your family and friends react to how ill you had become? Did they provide help and support? And if not, where did you turn for support and understanding? Well, after a lot of soul searching and a lot of forgiveness, I've let go of a lot of the pain that I experienced from family and friends. But um, family and friends failed miserably. Um, minus some of my friends. My friends were very supportive at the beginning. Uh, but over time, when I didn't get better and I continued to reject what they perceived as treatment or care, that uh, support dried up fast. And I think what happened was everybody basically made a few decisions, which was it's impossible for somebody to be harmed by drugs if they're taking them as prescribed. Mm -hmm. So therefore, Chris must have been abusing the drugs. Mm -hmm which was far from the case. As I said, I was taking them actually much less than they were prescribed. Um, the second thing I think was, you know, a message that a lot of people going through this get, which is trust the doctors. And when I would tell them I was, you know, more knowledgeable about the doctors, they would you know, sarcastically mock me. And it got to the point that because they perceived I wasn't asking for help or accepting help, that they would actually conspire to talk other people out of helping it really was a horrible, horrible thing. And I understand that if they were operating from an addiction paradigm, some of what they did might make a semblance of sense. But when it really comes down to it, what people need in any situation is not tough love. They need love. We need support. We need people to stand by us and tell us we're going to be okay, to tell us that they love us and remind us of who we were before this happened. So we have some, you know, tenuous grasp onto our old identity and our old beliefs and our old feelings, which when we go through this are completely annihilated. And so, Chris, was it really just down to you to self-support during that time or did you reach out and look elsewhere? Well, I think, you know, it was it was, you know, people would kind of come in and out. My friends would come in and out. I mean, they all love me and everybody just wanted the same thing, which was for me to get better. But ultimately, the only place that I really found, found validation and support were in online benzodiazepine support groups. And that's, again, one of the double-edged swords that we're all faced with, which is we are dependent on other injured laymen to get information about an acute medical crisis. And of course, because laymen aren't trained or there's really just not even enough of a knowledge base out there for any of us to find, there's a lot of bad information and a lot of opinion that's not always accurate and it's a scary kind of situation where we're reliant on people that we don't even know but at the same time it's the only place where we get support where we get love where we get validation where we get approval where we get 
the basic human needs that we need when we're going through this process. And Chris, you described that your withdrawal experiences and your suffering persisted for many years and that you were unable to work for much of that time. So as well as being unemployed, what other impacts did that protracted withdrawal experience have on your life? It basically cost me everything. Um, I've lost every, I mean, I lost every possession I've ever had. I basically was reduced to a suitcase. Um, I lost my mind, (laughs) which is probably the most incredibly scary and painful part of this. I lost my psychotherapy practice that I spent 20 years building. I lost co-ownership in two music schools that I'd helped build. Lost all my savings, my social relationships. Um, the, the, another one that was really hard is I lost my reputation and the value of my word. People thought I was lying about what was happening. They thought I was resistant and in denial, not willing to accept that I had a problem. When in actuality, I did have a problem, just not the problem anyone thought I had. I lost my physical health, too, in the middle of the suffering. Right when, thank God, the akathisia had just calmed down enough that I could sit, I had to have my prostate removed because I had prostate cancer. I lost my ability to feel connected to the universe, to Mother Earth. I mean, that's what makes us human is the connection to other humans, the connection to, you know, animals and nature and feeling it in our soul and the beauty of sunsets and the beauty of life and all of that is gone we're disconnected from the very essence of what makes us human and that is just brutal i lost my trust in the world i lost my trust in the medical profession and sadly for a while even though it's coming back i lost my faith in humanity and so how did you come to terms with all of those losses that you suffered When you start to get better, and I would say this for anyone that's in the midst of this storm and listening to this right now, when you start to get better, all the madness and pain and loss really seems to kind of dissipate and go away because you're so grateful to feel okay again, to feel present in your body, to feel laughter and joy. I few months ago, I went to see one of my favorite bands in concert. First time I'd done anything like that in five years. And music was always a hugely important part of my life. And literally for the first 20 minutes of the show, I sat there with tears running down my face because I felt alive again. I felt connected to the music. I felt my soul was back. The essence of what made me me was thriving and alive again. And I would just say to anyone going through this, there's hope. If someone that has paced for 40,000 miles can get better, anybody can get better. That's so important, isn't it? That connection to simple experiences. Because for many people, myself included, the drugs can remove the ability to do the simplest things in life, like going out for a walk or talking on the phone with a friend. I can see how big an impact reconnecting with life had on you. Well, it's, it's just so, it's a beautiful, it's, I mean, it's, you know, back to analogies, it's, it's like the butterfly coming out of the cocoon. And I think we come out in some ways better because we have a perspective that you could have never gained otherwise. I have appreciation for things that prior I would have probably not paid enough attention to. And things that used to bother me, like for me, punctuality, I was always very compulsive in a sense about being on time and recently i was late for something and i found myself laughing 
because I was like, am I really going to get upset about 15 minutes? Are you kidding me? After what I've endured, uh, trivial life experience become just that, trivial. And Chris, you said it's now been four years since you were detoxed from clonopin. So have you completely healed? And what does your life look like now? Not completely healed, still trapped on the two drugs. So I have a while of tapering, but I would say I'm 70% healed and I'm working again. I am more socially engaged. I'm still fatigued pretty easy and I have to set reasonable limits. But for the most part, I am back engaged in life and it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And it was well worth the suffering. Although I would never have wanted anyone to endure what I've endured. Um, but there is a beautiful place on the other side. And I'm so grateful that I'm, I really feel that I'm going to have an opportunity to take all these life lessons and put them to really good use. And so given the horrific experiences that you endured and that you shared so beautifully with us, I wanted to ask your opinion both as someone injured by benzodiazepines and also as a therapist on what changes we need to make to prevent what happened to you from happening to others? Well, I think first and foremost, we need true informed consent. Patients need to be given the opportunity to make an educated decision before they take one pill of any benzodiazepine or any psychiatric drug for that matter. That's a tricky thing because unfortunately, I don't think there's enough information from the pharmaceutical companies and even just from general science to truly have informed consent. Um, but, and what would informed consent look like? Well, you know, would the insert have said, Chris, if you take this, you risk losing the following 15 things and you'll be sick for four to five years. And I just can't see any lawyers approving something like that. But I think that would be unfortunately the most factually accurate. I think we need, um, my biggest pet peeve with mental health is besides for the, the drugging, is the lack of acknowledgement of trauma. And I think every therapist needs to understand the impact of trauma and treat trauma in patients, not treat diagnoses. I think that that really, what I've found professionally, is the key to true healing for people. I've always joked that my job as a therapist to make, is to make myself no longer necessary. And unfortunately, I think mental health has a different paradigm of wanting to always be necessary. Mm. I think a truly good therapist wants to make themselves no longer necessary. Mm. Um, I think that we need things like endocrine testing for all people before they go on any drugs to see if they're hormone issues. I think we need to have better genetic testing to truly understand how people metabolize these drugs and also how they really interact with each other. I think we need much more social connectedness. Uh, I think Johan Hari's Lost Connections really is a good example of how social disconnectedness has created an epidemic of depression. Mm -hmm. I think we need diet coaching, supplement coaching, exercise coaching. But what it really comes down to is one simple thing. I saw a client yesterday who said to me, when I saw you two weeks ago for the first time, and I asked you what I should give my kids above all, you said one simple word. You told me to give them love. Mm -hmm. And since I've been doing that the last two weeks, everything that was bothering me about them has gone away. And I think at the end of the day, what we really need is love. 
And that's what everyone going through benzodiazepine withdrawal or psych drug withdrawal or any crisis in their life. Ultimately, what they need is their social support system to love them. That's so powerful, isn't it? And Chris, working as a therapist, you must regularly come into contact with people who are either considering taking psychiatric drugs, including benzodiazepines, or who are already taking them. And I just wondered how you approach talking to someone about that. I think what it is, is, you know, again, it's tricky because I'm bound by standard of care regulations. I'm bound by, you know, just guidelines of of, of practice and treatment. But I think what my real job at that point is to give them true informed consent Mm. to, you know, to tell them, I don't mind sharing my story in a brief, um, short version just to give them an indication. And what I basically tell them is I was injured by a medication interaction. And what I want people to just understand is that it's possible for that to happen. And I think the greatest gift I can give my clients at that point is validation that their symptoms aren't coming from them you know, validation that it is the drugs that can actually cause these things to happen. Well, Chris, I personally feel that having medication-aware therapists is so important because many doctors and psychiatrists just haven't been where we are. And it's vitally important that we look beyond the marketing and to consider real-world experiences, both taking and coming off these drugs. I just wish that somehow we could make Anatomy of an Epidemic by Robert Whitaker required reading for every therapist. I just think we need to know both sides of the coin. I'm not denying that I haven't seen people have benefit or perceived benefit from taking psychiatric drugs. It's not my position to tell anybody to stop or start, but it is my position to give them as much information as they can have so they can truly make the most informed decision possible. Thanks, Chris. And was there anything else that you'd like to share with the listeners? I think the one thing that I would want is to tell one quick story, which is I had sought out some support from some people who had offered to help me, but shortly afterwards, um, we both decided it just wasn't a good match. And I was stranded 6,000 miles from home with nowhere to go, completely out of my mind, um, with severe, severe akathisia. And a good friend of mine called and said, you can come stay with me, but I had to get there. So I had to take a seven hour flight with severe akathisia and I literally paced the entire flight minus the takeoff and landing in the back galley of the plane back and forth for six hours. The pilot had been told that um, he had a passenger who had a medical condition. So he was incredibly accommodating and didn't turn on the no seatbelt sign. But at one point, one of the flight attendants turned to me and said, Whatever drugs or medicine they're giving you, it's clearly not working. (laughs) But thank God I had very understanding flight attendants and a pilot because my fear was that I was going to end up in a Canadian mental hospital never to escape because the flight would have to be diverted. But fortunately, I made it and it's been an incredibly long journey, but, you know, getting to the other side now. Well, Chris, you describe such horrific experiences so eloquently and I thank you so much for giving a message of hope that people do come through these experiences. I know that you still have some way to go in your journey, but I'm so pleased to hear that you made it through those times and so glad to be talking with you about everything that you experienced. Thank you for describing your journey and for giving us so much hope for the future. 
I and like I said, James, it was such a pleasure. You were such a kind, nice person, and I give you so much credit for what you have carved out through your own suffering. And it's people like you and I and Nicole and others that are truly going to change the world. Well, I want to thank Chris for his honesty and bravery in talking about what he endured. The impact of coming off these drugs for many people seems to create the need to rebuild on a fundamental level. And Chris really showed that it's possible to confront some of the worst imaginable times and to come through and to fully reconnect with life. So that ends part one of this WBAD podcast episode. And I'd like to thank Nicole, Joseph, and Chris for taking the time to chat. In part two of the podcast, we get to talk with Madden America founder, Robert Whittaker. So thank you for listening and take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.